This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, January 18th, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. Courts have had to modernize in the wake of COVID. Many of the efficiencies they've discovered probably ought to stay. So how have they performed? And how has COVID shifted the balance of power between defense and prosecution? Mark Levin is chief policy counsel at the Council on Criminal Justice. We spoke last month. Courts, I think, in the wake of COVID have discovered some efficiencies which is some of their work doesn't have to be done in a courtroom, but some of it really does have to take place uh, in a courtroom. And it's it's weird to imagine that a defendant would appear via Zoom uh, before a judge. Um, but so so what have you, have you observed uh, as the as the broad wake of COVID with respect to the judicial branch of government trying to do its job of adjudicating criminal cases. Yeah, no, it forced us to prioritize, I think, and to modernize, which which we should have been doing in many ways already. Um, and now the challenge, hopefully, as the pandemic at least uh, ebbs, is to figure out which uh, innovations to keep and and what things we really do need to do in person, for example. Um, and of course, all this is coming against the backdrop of an enormous backlog where some jurisdictions from Seattle to Houston, or it could take several years to clear out uh, cases. And so the first step, I said prioritize, that's where we have to say, you know, arresting people for our unpaid fines and fees for marijuana, even, you know, hard drugs, you know, people could be um, referred to treatment uh, through uh, deflection programs that have shown a lot of uh, positive impact because, you know, bringing people to jail and especially letting them languish there, it has a lot of negative effects where that actually causes the person more problems than they ever presented to society to begin with. So um, contracting COVID, possibly chief among them. Yes. And of course, while you're in jail, you often lose your job. You, your your apartment might be, um, you might not be able to pay your rent. You might be evicted. You may, uh, your car's impounded, which people forget. That's like $500 to get your car back, even if it's only a couple days, which $500 a lot of people don't have who are in jail, not to mention not being able to afford bail. So um, I think that uh, it's a lot of the jail populations, if you look across the country, went down quite a bit during the height of the pandemic, and then they started creeping back up again. And, you know, um, in, in many instances, there are people that are waiting for trial who haven't been convicted of anything. And um, there are certainly, obviously, if you have somebody who's on a, a, a serial killer, right, who's on a crime spree, you want to keep that person in jail before their adjudication. But in, in you know, even Chief Justice Rehnquist said in the famous Salerno case, pretrial detention should be the exception, not the norm, precisely because we adjudicate and then we that, to determine guilt and then we administer the punishment, not before. And um, so we, uh, but the other aspect really is the, just being able to um, uh, have a hearing uh, before a judge. And of course, for routine, um, like in probation, we've done uh, routine check-ins virtually in a lot of departments across the country, and that's worked really well. Uh, not having someone go sit in a probation office for an hour waiting to talk to a probation officer. So I, I, I'm encouraged that a lot of agencies are keeping these more flexible ways of supervising people. And to the extent that judges are also administrators of their courts, they seem to have been, at least uh, through people I've talked to, this is all anecdotal, uh, have been slow to try to to make changes or accommodate uh, new technology. A lot of judges are older, and uh, accommodating new technology is, is quite a challenge for them sometimes. Uh, so, you know, I guess, what's the role of uh, lawmakers to 
look at how the judicial branch has uh, carried out its functions during COVID-19? What do they need to be keeping in mind? Yeah, that's a great question, especially as there's these federal dollars that are still available in many states that have yet to be spent. And this is a perfect area where you can have an outsized impact uh, going forward. And so one example is Judge Schlegel in Louisiana. He he actually had a whole app created for uh, defendants to interact with his court. Um, so if a defendant uh, can't come uh the next day because they're sick or they they can't get childcare. They can go on the app and say, this is my situation instead of getting a failure to appear, which, you know, it's a warrant for your arrest and it's a whole lot of resources that the justice system has to spend against someone who wasn't trying to flee justice. Um, so he, this is really, uh, he's had tremendous results with, with uh, using these technologies, um, including a cell phone app. Um, and uh, it enables him to spend more of his time uh, actually doing the kinds of inter- interaction with people that motivate them to change, which is the kind of the unique human uh, element. Uh, so that's what these technologies can do is they can actually enable us to uh, use the, the human resources for the unique things that uh, we need them for. So uh, go- going a little deeper here, you said that the uh, courts have probably been needing to modernize for uh, some time and that an app certainly is useful. But uh, using COVID, I guess, is the opportunity to sort of look more deeply at how we do things, what what can what's what's the low hanging fruit for courts to make adjustments uh, to deliver justice better? Yeah, no, I mean, I think many of us have gotten a, tra- a parking ticket where you actually have to ha- sit on there to contest this. You have to go in person. So that's like, you know, the very bottom end. It's ridiculous, right? I mean, there ought to be a way, whether by phone or by uh, online uh, Zoom or whatever, to to discuss the the uh, issue. And, and I think that the um, uh, certainly we do have to be cognizant of it as we get into higher level cases where somebody's contesting their guilt is, is of course, the confrontation clause. You have a right to confront your accusers. And there's when people are t- Testifying, there's visual cues that juries look to, and so forth. So, um, certainly, we do uh, want to make sure every defendant who wants an in-person trial uh, that right is vindicated. And in fact, we have far too few trials, which is part of the problem with the trial penalty and plea bargaining, where many innocent people plead guilty just to get out of jail or just to uh, avoid what would be an exponentially higher penalty if they went to trial and were found guilty. Um, so, uh, I think at one uh, we have to do both, right? We have to um, uh, kind of create more bandwidth for criminal trials to occur as they traditionally are held, but also um, we have to kind of, first of all, get cases out of the criminal justice system for things that shouldn't be criminal, uh, deflect people who don't need to be arrested or, or brought to jail uh, through you know, alternatives to police response and even police uh, diversion. And uh, those programs like the LEAD program in Seattle, which has expanded to Colorado, where for low-level drug cases, uh, police actually um, uh, offer the person, refer the person to a um, uh, uh, clinician and and a case manager who arrange for them to get services and so forth. So um, these, and that program in particular, saved two-thirds on jail costs and, and also on emergency room costs. It is a constitutional requirement that people receive swift justice, right? That is to say, a speedy trial, but that is is broader than that in terms of having their uh, criminal claims adjudicated. So what, what onus does that put on other branches of government to assure that courts are able to actually follow through on that? And, and, and what kind of uh, metrics ought they to be using to try to come up with you're doing a good job 
you are doing a good job given the circumstances or you are just simply not trying. Sure. And of course, uh, having enough judges. And so some jurisdictions in recent months have uh, pulled in visiting judges, for example, to try to address that. But it's also the indigent uh, defense counsel, some of whom could have hundreds of cases at once if there's not a uh, oversight of that. And then just turn into plea machines. They're not really uh, investigating and, and advocating for their clients. So one of the things I'm a fan of is both client choice in indigent defense and holistic defense, where the defense lawyer engages with service providers like Bronx Defenders is a great example um, and kind of actually makes the defendant a much more uh, quote, attractive candidate to the prosecutor before, typically, of course, it's through a plea before the the outcome is is determined. So, of course, the the um, uh, defense lawyer in a holistic defense model helps their client, um, uh, for example, get drug or mental health treatment. So now they can say to the prosecutor, I've already solved the problem. He doesn't need a conviction. Let's do a pretrial diversion. Um, and, um, uh, you know, and if the person fails in a couple of years, then you can Try to give him a conviction. The other, of course, aspect I mentioned, client choice. Uh, a, a defend, in that case, a defendant, it's almost like a voucher. They can choose from a range of capable uh, attorneys who are available. Um, their caseload's monitored by, for example, the county bar or by a county office, but it takes it out from a judge appointing someone uh, to represent that person, that person having no voice in who that is. And when you think about it, in that circumstance, the the everybody's the government. The prosecutor's the government. The the government shows who who the defendant's lawyer is. So uh, it's really important to have the fidelity to the client. To the extent that people have been adjudicated to be criminals and uh, have to pay fines or fees or serve jail time, you know what kind of savings would we be talking about to our court system if we could allow those people to repay? you know, make formal apologies, uh, that sort of thing to, to people who were their victims. Yes. No. And this brings up, it's related to the court, uh, clog situation on the backlogs of cases because it's another off-ramp from the traditional system is to have solutions like victim-offender mediation, where basically with an agreement between the victim and the defendant, and it's most common for property offenses, the defendant typically will make restitution um, and uh, they will apologize uh, and um, they're sometimes with community service would be part of it. And a lot of times the victim wants answers that only the the person that harmed them can provide. Like, why did you choose me? And also an assurance that you're not going to do it to somebody else. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of research about uh, whether it's victim offender mediation or sentencing circles, um, which is, by the way, the default in New Zealand, which is rated as one of the freest countries in the world. But um, the outcomes are great in terms of victims saying they're satisfied, in terms of more likely to get restitution rather than have, think about all the money that first goes to the government when you have the traditional process, whether it's through fines, bail, um, and paying for attorneys and all of that. And this is an opportunity to say, kind of short circuit that. And again, it's with the consent of the victim and the defendant waiving their right to a trial. So um, it's something more jurisdictions, uh, I think, should implement. It's more common in the juvenile system, where sometimes you see even service restitution, the kid, you know, doing some um, mowing lawns or uh, doing some other service uh, that is meaningful. Does that avoid conviction, a conviction? Yes. It, it, assuming the agreement's performed, the person uh, does everything they're supposed to, then they have no criminal record. Now, if it, if there's the person fails, which is a, a small percentage of cases, then the prosecution would be free to bring the case again. Prosecutors swear an oath to justice. Mm-hmm. And uh, yet with a court backlog, it seems to me that it moves a lot of power 
into prosecutors' offices because they they nor, under normal circumstances sort of get to pick and choose which cases they want to go to trial versus offering a plea. And uh, to the extent that they offer pleas, they're still getting that conviction, which uh, helps their numbers. Uh, so it, you know, in the case of COVID nineteen, a massive uh, backlog. Have prosecutors done anything to help? Some have, um, and and the, uh, there's actually a list on the Brennan Center website of different prosecutor innovations since uh, COVID began, including you know saying I'm not going to prosecute marijuana anymore and certain other uh, low level offenses. And of course, it can go. You know, you don't want to. Um, you get into some tension there, obviously, if it's something. I think where there's particularly where there's an individual victim and the legislature's made it a crime. Uh, some people say, well. Gosh, uh, isn't there is there a separation of powers issue? But there's also pr- prosecutorial discretion, so it's a delicate balance. But I think the um, but the other thing really that I, I think prosecutors um, they're uh, because of how long it takes to resolve a case. I I think that many of them feel that are trying to do the right thing that they're not necessarily the best vehicle for getting someone who has mental illness into mental health treatment or something. Sure, there's the leverage of, I'm going to bring this case if you don't do this. But but I also think that um, we're probably putting too many cases at the doorstep of prosecutors, ones that that really wouldn't, whatever we're, we're dealing with, like somebody who's, um, you know, sleeping in the street, um, a public trespassing, for example, that that really ought to be handled, um, if possible, just through um, the uh, social service system and through police deflection, something that doesn't come to the desk of a prosecutor, because the process takes so long. By the time you even get somebody into, uh, if you do get a conviction, it would be a year or two later, perhaps, that that person, now you're saying you have to go to treatment. And that person may have had a fatal overdose by then. That person um, may not be the same person. Maybe their problem's been solved by then. So I think it, the system is out of whack even before COVID, and now it's even more so when it comes to the traditional process, the timetable for that versus the timetable for actually trying to constructively solve a problem with the fewest social costs possible. Mark Levin is Chief Policy Counsel at the Council on Criminal Justice. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice. And follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.